So now that I realize from Guy that this is the real millennium, I feel like I need to say something important. So tonight, uh, I'd like to talk about um, wise aspiration. And I like, I'd like to start off with a story. It's a story from the Old Testament. And it's about King Solomon. It said that uh, at one point, the king uh, was a very wise, benevolent king, and two women came to him, each claiming ownership of a newborn child, one being the birth mother and the other, in some way or other, also claiming some sense of possession with that child. And the king said, this is what I'm going to do, as the two women were squabbling over uh, the right to have the child. He says, I'm going to cut it in two. I want you to take the sword and slice the child in two and give each of you half. Seems the only fair way. At which point, he raised his sword and started to do just that when the birth mother screamed out and said, no, the child belongs to her and gave it to the other woman. At which point, it said that King Solomon understood who was the real birth mother and gave the child back to the woman. I tell that story because for a moment, as the sword was being raised, the birth mother was blown out of her sense of self, transcended that sense of self, and encompass something far greater, far more encompassing, in which it wasn't about me, mine, and I, but about something much beyond herself, much greater than that. Coming back uh, this evening for a brief visit with Joseph and Sharon, I stopped in Uh, after the cake and hot chocolate, just to look at the dining room. And I was walked up to the staff who had decorated the room, the staff who had baked the cake, and spent a great deal of time doing that. And I just saw um, joy in their eyes. Not a joy of uh, egocentric, uh, of egotism, but a joy of having shared and given. And that I, me, and mine was not the basis of that joy. Something far greater. And I'm sure you felt it. You can't not feel that. In some ways, I could stop the talk now. 
Because isn't that what we aspire to? Is there a place in each one of us, is there not, that yearns for that joy? Sometimes we find that joy through trauma. I once taught a retreat in Oklahoma City three weeks after the bombing. And there were um, a number of people at that retreat. And they were out of themselves in some way. And when I started to dialogue with them in the groups and individually, they were still feeling the residual effects not of the tragedy of the bombing, but of the spirit of the joining of the community afterwards, in which the only thing they could do the only thing they were compelled to do was to serve. They said they could not keep themselves from going down to the bomb site and doing anything they could, serving water to the people who were excavating the site, the rescue workers, or cheering them, anything, anything. And they said there was a, there was a kind of of heart space that they had never felt before as a community. Don't we long for that? Is there something in the Buddhist teaching that is pointing to that? Or is this just an incident of some tragedy some psychological fix that the mind... I mean, we could put all the kind of psychological explanations to something, I'm sure. But it feels more. Last year, I was privileged to go to the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon, they invited me because a group of inmates had formed a hospice in which those inmates served other dying inmates. And what they were finding was that there was incredible change occurring in the character of the people who were serving the dying. And they were bringing in um, professionals in the field to encourage that happening. And they didn't have words for it, but you could. So I, I went to the. Um, it's a. I went to the uh, inmates, and there's a funny story to begin with. I, when I got out of the car, the woman who had driven me there uh, was a chaplain. And uh, I had come in blue jeans. And she said, oh my God, she said, you can't wear blue jeans into the prison. And I said, well, why not? She says, because the inmates wear blue jeans. And 
people, visitors aren't allowed to dress as the inmates. I said, well, that's all I've got. She says, well, we'll do something. So they, she, they sort of whisked me off into the back room, and they gave me a pair of sweatpants. <laughs> the problem with these sweatpants is that they came up to mid-calf. <laughs> so I started walking into the prison as the inmates were coming out of the activity yard, and they all whistled at me. <laughs> So I, I got in the, uh, they let me through the doors. See, they wouldn't open the doors until all the inmates had come in. And I was standing there. They were all around me, hundreds of them. Uh, and so then they would all unlock the doors all together, and then I could go in. So then I went in, and I was feeling uh, very out of place, as you might. I've never been in a prison before. And I, so I, I sat down uh, to meet with these group of inmates who were uh, hospice workers. And uh, I just happened to talk to the chaplain uh, before the group congregated, and there were like 20 chairs. And I said, um, I said, uh, a chaplain, what, what would some of these people have done? Uh, well, what, who am I talking to? And she said, oh, probably uh, 80% of them are murderers. And I just, I, I, I lost reference. I, I don't know how to talk to a murderer. I, I, I don't know what to say to a murderer. What do I say to a murderer? I, I remember, <laughs> chaplain, what do I, I, mean, I don't know what to say to a murderer. I, mean, I really, I, I felt my ground shake a little. Um, and so the seats were filled, and I kept going in and out of that perspective of, oh, I'm talking to a murderer, and then I'm talking to a human being. And oh, I'm talking to a murderer, and now I'm talking to you. And I kept, figure ground kept flipping on me like that a little bit. And as it wore on and I could touch the human quality of these people, my heart started to come out for them towards their sincerity. And let me tell you the story of one of them. One of them was a huge man, had a ponytail tattoos all over his arms, Enormous. He weighed well over 300 pounds, muscular, big man, huge, 6'5", probably. So we were sitting there, and he's one of the hospice-trained inmates. And we're going around just talking about what, how people got involved in this work and what their first encounters with death were. And so he tells, us, he tells me the following story. He said uh, that he, was, he had murdered... Uh, is a hate crime, uh, a gay man. And that uh, had done some heinous crime and went into quite details of what he had done. And then, um, and he said, uh, the first hospice patient I got was a gay man. And he said he was sitting with the man working with his feelings, but working with them. And the gay man, who was close to death, asked him to hold his hand. And he did. And he said when he touched, the flesh touched the flesh, he started sobbing. 
Now, if you could see this man, even as he was telling the stories, tears was coming to, were coming to his eyes. He had touched humanity. He had touched something beyond what he knew, beyond what he understood, beyond what had motivated and driven him his whole life. He became bigger than himself. He was transformed. You see, this practice is about that transformation. We start with the difficulties here at hand. We start with the personality and the content. We start with all the things that Guy talks so eloquently about tonight. But it's not a stopping place. That's not the end. For there's much more. We keep working. Because our heart won't allow that rest. It won't say, this is enough. I've got it. This is, it's finished now. It won't, it doesn't come to that. Is there an end to our ability to love? Is it finite? Is growth finite? Is that enough growth? There is a dear woman in our Seattle Sangha whose brother was a missionary in Zimbabwe and he was carrying a rifle with him on an airplane because where he was stationed as a missionary there were a lot of thieves and he had to arm himself. And he was caught with the rifle and thrown in prison with two other people and they said that he was a revolutionary, an outside agitator and he was there to overthrow the government. And his sister, who I knew very well from retreats in, came to me and she was um, furious. And she was, you can feel, you, you would know, you know, you just, there's nothing you can do but you're, you're enraged. Well, I can all feel that. And I said to her, what do you want to do here, Carol? Which way do you want to go? Do you want to heal? Or do you want to hurt? And she said, I want to heal. Through the rage. She said, teach me, what, how do I heal? How do I, what does that mean to heal? And we talked about it over many days and weeks together. 
And she started she, one of the things she did was she brought her family together. They hadn't been together in 20 years since a very difficult divorce. And she brought her family together around this issue. And her mother and father, who hadn't spoken in years, started speaking together around this issue. And they started learning how to participate and work together and communicate in a cooperative way that they had never learned around this issue. And then she went out to Amnesty International. And, but, always, but not in an antagonistic way, as an inclusive way. Connecting. Always connecting. And she said, you know, it was almost a transcendent experience for her. To work in the midst of the turmoil and volatility of the emotions that were being shown by the family, by herself, by... And yet to work in a way, a direction, an aspiration, an intention, an aim to heal through all of that. Not to further disconnect, but to come together Are the strategies that we employ in life truly strategies of healing? Unless we hold that view, that intention, quite likely they are not. In this retreat, we have a whole vocabulary of healing of terms to heal, of terms to connect. We talk about letting go, receptivity, allowance, non-judgment, stillness, non-clinging. That's the vocabulary of coming together. That's the vocabulary of mergence, of inclusion. of connecting. And from our vantage point of self, we can distort even those words. Instead of acceptance, we wait for discomfort to end. Intolerance to it. And instead of understanding, we offer a distortion of blame and accusation. Instead of trust, we often offer our doubt. And instead of just seeing, we offer our evaluation. The very words that are meant to bind, we can use adharmically against ourselves, further fracturing. And yet our heart yearns for inclusion 
we aspire in the deepest intentionality of our being to connect The Buddha talked once about wise aspiration and wise view. And there was a story in which he was an audience with his monks and two ascetics from that time came into his sangha. One of them was an ox ascetic and one of them was a dog ascetic. And it's said that the dog ascetic was uh, crawled in on his all fours and would only eat things that were thrown to him on the ground. And the ox ascetic was also crawling on all fours and had a pasted tail and I guess mood or something. I don't really know what. But those two ascetic people came in and plopped down and the dog ascetic sort of curled up at the Buddha's feet. And the Buddha, it was interesting, he didn't ridicule these two. And one or the other of the ascetics looked up and said to the Buddha, Buddha, if I practice in this way, what will I become? And the Buddha said, I don't really want to answer that. And so the ascetic asked two more times, ritualistically, and on the third time the Buddha agreed to answer. And he said, the best you will become practicing like an ox is an ox. The best you will become practicing like a dog is a dog. So I read that sutta, and I think, well, what does that have to do with anything? And I begin to understand that the best we will become practicing from a sense of self is a good person. That's the best. That's the end. And I think that the message of the Buddha is much more than that. Because the fulfillment of heart does not stop with just being a decent human being. Fulfillment of the heart requires a different kind of aspiration, a different kind of longing than to be soothed and comforted. And so we have come here together on a New Year's Eve to see and to nourish and to fan the flames which will allow us perhaps to long for that very thing, to seek it out.
what will long our fan our flames, what will encourage us to move beyond just comfort into the realms of the mystery. into the habitat of joy. It means changing the strategies, the very orientation and direction of our life. means making everything, aspiring to connecting through everything, through our emotions, through our pain, through our relationships, through our job, connecting, connecting. It means learning constantly, forever. And it means receiving the world. Opening. Yet more. Yet again. There's a story of a child who was riding or got into her car with her father. And the child refuses to sit down and get strapped in. And the father says, sit down. I'm not going to move the car until you sit down. The child refuses to sit down and the father says, okay, we're just going to sit here. Finally, in a very sullen with a very sullen attitude, the child sits down and is buckled in to the car seat. And she looks up to the father and she says, In my mind, Daddy, I'm still standing up. <laughs> Without wise aspiration, we are all left standing. Can we sit for a minute or two? And as we sit, I would just like to read something from Shanti Devi. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a servant, may I be a slave. May I be the wishing jewel the vase of plenty, 
a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. As we sit, we're going to hand out some protection cords. They have the color of the monastic tradition and so represent the lineage from our time through the 2,544 years to the Buddha time. And we will chant the refugees, refuges and the precepts. And if you want to instill this chord with your right intentions, with your right aspiration, with what you want this year to be for you, perhaps the deepest intentions of your heart, you can either join in through the refuges, through the precepts, Or you can be silent and just intone it with your own sense of wise aspiration. And uh, the teachers will hand out these chords now. (laughs) 